0: Despite the general perception that Taoism is simply an informal and carefree philosophical perspective, the Taoist tradition is a highly formalized spectrum of ritual practices and communal beliefs. Religious Taoism emerged within the rich 2nd century political and social milieu when challengers to official rulership offered alternative political structures to the imperial order. The establishment of the celestial master theocracy in northwest China provided a structured system that emphasized the apocalyptic urgency of social reform. The new community was shaped by rigid codes of conduct and supported by religious professionals who mediated the bureaucratic relationship with the pantheon of gods. With unparalleled detail, celestial masters, history and ritual in early Taoist communities, Terry Kleeman outlines the historical development of the Taoist church during this formative period he also provides a thorough account of the ritual and institutional life of Taoist communities during the first five centuries. In the second half of the book, Kleeman explains the various roles for community members, including the Taoist citizen, the novice, and the parish priest. In our conversation, we discuss Chinese official histories, the Taoist canon, the celestial master-founder Zhang Daoling, the relationship between Taoism and Buddhism, the Ar commentary of Laozi's Tao Te Ching, ordination rituals, gender and women, petitions and talismans, Taoist daily and seasonal life, and rituals for the dead. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion. Now, my conversation with Terry Kleeman about his wonderful new book, Celestial Masters, History and Ritual in Early Taoist Communities, published by Harvard University Press in 2016. Welcome, Terry. Thanks for joining me on New Books in Religion. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Now, this book, Celestial Masters, History and Ritual in Early Taoist Communities, uh, it's an award-winning book. It's it's well-deserving of all the recognition you've got. Um, I'm excited to talk about it. Uh, but before we get into the book, uh, we always start our conversations with a little bit about uh, what brought you to the study of religion, Chinese religions, Uh, perhaps mentors or moments that were influential in shaping uh, the subjects you examine or the approaches you take uh, where uh, you know what brought you to where you are today
1: okay Um, I think I started out originally more interested in Chinese philosophy especially classical philosophy Laozi and Zhuangzi and those type of thinkers And uh, by the time I got to my M.A., I was already working in the early medieval period, which is a little bit past the classical period of philosophy. And there I was mostly interested in what is called mysterious learning or xuanxue, which is a philosophical movement of the third and fourth century. Uh, So I was working on that up at uh, University of British Columbia in Vancouver. That's where I did my M.A., And we were visited by Professor Michel Strickman from the University of California, Berkeley, who gave a lecture that I found quite inspiring on early religious Taoism. And he pointed out that for the medieval period, the one most unexploited resource is actually the Taoist canon, the collection of Taoist scriptures that have survived from that period. And that really got me to thinking I, I went off after my M.A. for a couple years in Japan, studying with scholars of Taoism there, and then ended up with my Ph.D. back at Berkeley, studying with Michelle Strickman. And that really is what set me on the path. I've been doing Taoism ever since then as an organized religion and was always interested in sort of the early medieval period, which is where this book is set. But my first, my dissertation actually was on a slightly later period, on um, on the Song, so about the 10th century to the 12th century. That's the period when the great Chinese god cults get established, and I traced the history of one of those cults, the cult to the god of literature, Wen Chang, as my first uh, study, my first book. But I remained in love with the second to fourth centuries, that period, and eventually got back to working on that period. My second book was about a uh, Chinese millennial kingdom in the fourth century that was Taoist in nature. And uh, I, I found out everything I could about Taoism for that small state. But uh, that really set the tone for me. That was in 98 I published that book. And since then, I've been working very seriously on early celestial master Taoism. So Taoism as it was when it was founded in the second century up through maybe the fifth or sixth century CE. Uh, that's the main period of the book that
0: I have now. Yeah. Now, uh from knowing your work a little bit uh the, the celestial masters is always kind of in the orbit of your your work um but when did you start to think of this as a as a book project and um you know for for people that aren't familiar with this book yet um it's really almost two books in one you've written two excellent books packaged them together uh so how how did you begin to conceive it uh both in this kind of historical chronology but then also as this more uh, textual analysis of uh, the, the, the kind of ritual sphere of uh, early celestial masters.
1: Yeah. Well, this book was a long time in formation. I really started working on it when I had a leave back in 2006. And especially, I had a leave in 2009 when I went and lived in China for seven months. And that's where I largely completed the first half of the book. The first half of the book is a historical chronicle. And my goal there was just to try and assess all of the surviving historical information for for the formation of this religion and its growth over these first few centuries. Um, And uh, that went rather smoothly, I thought. Uh, But then I got into the content of of the religion, you know, not just the, the sheer chronological trappings, but what did it really mean to be a Taoist to, at that time? What did it mean to join this faith? And how did it contrast with other believers at that time? And so uh, the historical portion of the book was largely completed maybe by 2010, something like that. And I really started into the second half of the book working through uh, what were Taoist communities like internally. Uh, And there I'm dealing with sort of different kinds of evidence. It's not historical narrative so much. A lot of it is actually prescriptive texts. Um, codes of conduct and precepts to, to obey, things like that. Uh, but still, there's a great deal of this material, and we also have uh, remnants of the ordination process. Everyone who was a member of this religion went through a specific ordination ritual that gave them a specific rank in the church, and uh, that material survives as well. So putting all that material together allowed me to write the last uh, four chapters, which are talking about how Taoist communities work internally and the various roles that people take within these uh, religious communities.
0: And uh, to to set the book up, um, and for, for listeners also uh, who aren't familiar with uh, China in this context – Uh, the second century, China has a rich religious milieu. Um, and, uh, one of the great kind of contributions to this book is, uh, you really place the, the the emergence of the celestial masters within this very particular historical moment. Um, so could you, could you talk about some of the key social and religious and political factors that are shaping your subjects and the movement and, uh, what, what does a novice uh, need to know to begin to understand your project? Okay, so um,
1: I guess one of the first things to know is politically, there was the Han Dynasty, which was very comparable to the Roman, uh, dynasty, the Roman Empire in a lot of ways, both in terms of scope and uh, historical duration. It was around for a long time. And when in the second century that Han Empire began to crumble and uh, emperors no longer had effective control over the, the nation and things like that, that gave rise to a, a general sense of disquiet, I think. And you see a lot of religious activity in China just at this time. Part of this is the, uh, the entry of... Buddhism into China. Buddhism came into China in the first century A.D. and by the second century was already beginning to establish itself a bit, translated scriptures, things like that. And that provided a great stimulus, I think, to uh, to the Chinese people to think about religion in new ways. So what you see in the second century is a number of movements that seem to be trying to reform the Chinese religious tradition. The Chinese religious tradition up until this point had been a diffuse religion characterized by blood sacrifice to a variety of polytheistic gods who occupied all different sorts of sacred places across the landscape of China. The, uh, The second century brought this general disquiet I think with the the process of sacrifice uh, Buddhism did not conduct sacrifice and looked on it as evil, even as killing living beings. But what a, bothered the Chinese even more about this was it seemed like if you if you consider the the uh, the metaphor that Chinese gods are like officials, then sacrifice to a god, looks an awful lot like a bribe to an official. And for a number of reasons, there's movements in the second century that seek to either redefine sacrifice or reject it entirely. And that's at the heart of the uh, early Taoist movement called the Celestial Masters. So they are as Michel Strickman inspired me uh, back in nineteen, gosh, seventy-eight or whatever, to, to he said, "This is a religious revolution, to total change in the makeup of the religious countryside of China." And indeed, uh, it is at that time in the second century that this real organized religion of the celestial master Taoism was founded. Uh, it was founded in a revelation. There is a founder, Zhang Daoling, who was visited by a god, who is the uh, the divine form of the philosopher Laozi. Laozi transformed into a dog god. They set up a new um, a new covenant with mankind that involves. Clearly, the eschewing of all sorts of blood sacrifice, and instead a moral relationship with deity. So, gods now would not be subject to any sort of entreaties or profferments of offerings or anything like that. The only way to approach the gods of Taoism, who are understood to be just transformations of the great Tao, is through moral conduct. And proper Taoist ritual.
0: Now, when you're talking about in the first two chapters uh, the establishment of this uh, the- theocracy, really, um, you you look at both external uh, sources to the movement uh, and then these internal sources from uh, the Taoist canon. Um, what what image of the movement emerges from these early sources? Um, what what are some of the defining characteristics of the celestial master ritual and institutional life? Um, and, and what kind of discrepancies do we see between, uh, you know, official Chinese sources and then internal sources?
1: So official Chinese sources are always relatively opposed to religious movements. And in fact, one of the main results of my second book on this Cheng Han Empire of the 4th century was precisely how little was preserved in traditional Chinese historical sources mm-hmm. about this kingdom which was inspired by Taoism and actually had a Taoist priest as its prime minister for its entire existence. So it was very important to me to to try and portray both sides of this argument. So my first chapter gives the historical account, all of of what the traditional uh, historical sources in China tell us about the movement. And they, they noticed it. They clearly understood that it was different from what they saw around them. It had this curious organization within the precincts where Taoism prevailed religious professionals actually replaced government officers and a religious tithe to the church replaced the normal government land tax. So for all these reasons, it was sort of dubious to anyone upholding the, the uh, orthodoxy of the central government and, and Chinese political tradition. eh? Um, but what inspired the people in the movement and what you see in the internal documents that I take up in the second yeah. chapter is really, um, uh, first, this sense that the world is coming apart, that they are going through great disasters, that, that there is a approaching millennium, and that uh, eventually, after these disasters, wash away the unclean take away those who aren't, don't deserve to live in this world any longer you will be left with a pristine world that they called uh great peace great peace Taipei. and it was this world that they were constantly looking forward to they were uh, uh, in the early years of the movement they thought that this would appear in their lifetime. It was very imminent. And when you look at third century documents, you see um, documents sort of helping the faithful deal with the fact that the, this uh, utopian world of great peace had not yet arrived, and that people were starting to die off, not having seen great peace. And this was obviously a bit of a problem for members of the early movement. But there was a real esprit de corps. People saw themselves as being very different from the profane, the term they used for the non-believers, those who still worship the bloodthirsty deities of the popular religion. They saw themselves as very much uh, apart from them, having a different fate and a different eschatology awaiting them when they finally left this world. Um, there was also a very interesting sex ritual called the merging of pneumas that was used as an initiatory ritual. We don't know too much about it. It was clearly controversial, uh, exactly who participated in it when is still the subject of some debates, but that also clearly set them apart. So everyone who was a Taoist had, an adult Taoist had participated in this kind of a sex right in some sort. They also had a clear rank within their community that they could change through endeavor, through studying and learning from their master. They could ascend within the hierarchy. It formed a real, uh, alternate society within, uh, Within Chinese society as a whole, because within the Taoist church, for example, women could become masters, which entailed high levels of literacy. Even menials, people born as slaves, could rise to become masters in the church. And again, rank within Taoist social communities was based on their rank within the church, their ordination rank. Uh, They also had distinctive clothing, probably had distinctive eating habits. They were certainly vegetarian in their rituals. We're not sure that they were vegetarian all the time or not. Um, And just in general, they saw themselves as apart from from the normal Chinese community. Uh, Buddhists were an interesting question for them. Buddhists in some ways... Fit with them they didn't commit perform sacrifice, so they didn't seem profane, and yet the Buddhists didn't always like them, which is a little puzzling for them, I think, but anyhow, that was about something of their position in society at the time Great. Um
0: now one of the internal sources that uh is pretty well known and you you make a good use of it in in your book is this uh, Shanger commentary. Um, Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about what this text is about and uh, what does it provide uh, historians of celestial masters?
1: Well, we always knew that the Tao Te Ching, the Lao Tzu, this historical philosophical text, was important to the celestial masters. When we discovered the Xiang'er commentary, we found how it was important. We found specifically through this rather detailed commentary, which we think was perhaps written by the founder himself, Zhang Daoling, uh, how they un- understood the Laozi, what it meant to them to have, um, to have that text and, and perhaps even to be reciting it in ritual contexts. Uh, there's some indication that they did that. Uh, what you see from the commentary is that they've really radically reinterpreted it. So uh, when the Lao makes this general statement saying you should distrust knowledge, right? Which is uh, an important philosophical point about epistemology. Uh, the Taoists instead say you should distrust false knowledge, you know, not the Taoist scriptures, of course, which you should believe implicitly, but the knowledge. That certain texts in the secular world are not to be believed, and that's the focus of that interpretation. There's generally um, a devaluing of of the Chinese classics, the standard philosophical texts, and things like that. The younger says half of them are false. Um, There's repeated um, exhortations to people to follow the precepts, follow the rules. And clearly these are the internal rules for the Taoist community. These rules are not explicitly stated, but we have lots of later collections of precepts, something like that. Um, Yeah. Other than that, most of it is, is sort of a, a fairly standard commentary on the Lao Tzu. There's an interesting sort of distrust of, of artifice and knowledge and uh, technology. They say, even they question why people need carts. You know, carts are nice, but couldn't you get along without them or something like that? A really sort of basic ur- urging for or yearning maybe for a uh, primitive past, something like that. The other thing you see in there is is concern for some very uh, detailed elements of, of Taoist doctrine. So, for example, uh, the early Taoists thought it was quite heretical to imagine the Tao itself as having a fixed physical form. We know that there were people like this. Another text of about this period, the Baopudzu, or the Master Who Embraces Simplicity, tells about a meditative method where you envision the Tao, or Lao in his divine form, as a specific figure with a specific height, wearing a certain color of robes, and in a specific place in the body. Taoists thought this heretical. They thought it profoundly evil to imagine the the, the the supreme being of the universe, if you will, in this kind of a physical form. Mm-hmm. But that does not mean that they rejected visualization practices like this entirely. In fact, on the contrary, there were many gods in the body that they did envision. And it was very important to them to envision them in their proper size and color of garments and things like that. So it's a specific fine line within their practice that they're making in this text. Similarly, even though they had this sex ritual, the merging of the numas, they specifically criticize in the Xiang'er commentary some other methods of sexual practice. So again, there was a fine line between the practice that they thought was correct and orthodox and salutary and the practices, very similar in many ways, that they thought profane and evil and leading to calamity.
0: Now, in the third century, this theocratic state is dissolved. The community is scattered across North China. Uh, how how did Taoists make sense of this this failure of the state, and what what effects did it have on the movement's uh, organizational or institutional principles?
1: So that's a really interesting question we We really have a sort of silence uh after the fall of the Hanjung community in two fifteen There are just a couple documents that survive from the third century and i've I've treated them in some detail in my third chapter but they what they show is a movement that really um sort of has lost its center and is trying to maintain orthodoxy at the same time as it's undergoing very rapid um, development and spread. It's this a this very strong evangelical period for the church. And the church spreads throughout across all of North China at this time in just probably a hundred years. At the same time, what you see in the couple documents that we have surviving from this period, is the central administration railing against um, independent innovations being made? Uh, it seems that the church was just too widespread at this time. People weren't in contact with whatever was left of the central administration. It's unclear whether there was still at this time an effective celestial master running everything. But if he if he was, he certainly was not in effective control of all of these believers across this wide swath of North China. So you see a lot of condemnations of people making up their own rituals or creating their own path, something like that, deviating somehow from traditional norms. Um... But still, uh, in the mid-5th century, we still have, see people complaining about how the communities are deteriorating, but still acknowledging that the communities are there and are basically following the precepts and having this distinctive sort of lifestyle.
0: And it, to, uh, the last part of your uh, historical account um, looks at the 4th through the 6th centuries, And here uh, we also kind of in China, China more broadly, we have shifting political control. um, We have competition for for patronage, for religious groups. Uh, What was new uh, about this time period and and how did it affect Taoism? Um, And also uh, here you also point to some of the the relationships between Taoists and Buddhists and and even other religious uh, uh, regional religious activity. What was the relationship between Taoists with other uh, religious groups?
1: Okay, well, that's a lot of questions. (laughs) Sorry. Um, sorry. So, first, you have to separate sort of North China and South China. In South China during this period, Taoism pretty much continued its spread and really became very much, uh, very well established within the highest levels of Southern society. So when we look at the historical accounts from the late 4th and 5th century, an awful lot of the actors in history at that time were from traditional celestial master families. Um, That only begins to falter because of the rise of Buddhism. Buddhism becomes ever more popular, and especially during the Liang dynasty, You have a Liang emperor, Liang Wu Di, who in fact was born a Buddhist, a Taoist, I'm sorry, and was still practicing Taoist rituals after he came to the throne, being converted into a devout Buddhist and sort of turning his back on on Taoism. And you see also at this time the rise of polemics, debates between Taoists and Buddhists about who is correct. In the earlier period, Taoists and Buddhists seem to be relatively happy to join in opposition to the popular religion. But now, perhaps, as Buddhism becomes more uh, impactful in Chinese society, you start seeing conflicts arise. Now, North China is a very different situation. North China, during this period, is conquered by a variety of non-Chinese, semi-nomadic peoples. And they take to Buddhism as a state faith. They don't have any, they they typically just have a simple shamanistic religion as their native faith. And Buddhism just seems wonderfully ornate and compelling to all of these Northern peoples. And they all convert to Buddhism in part because of the promises Buddhism makes about supernatural help given to a Buddhist ruler, a Buddhist Chakrabartan. And Buddhism has a very different model of interaction with the state. In general, it depends upon a a converted Buddhist ruler to to promote from the state-side Buddhism and sponsor it and uh, host these huge uh, ritual feasts they give or things like that. So what you see in North China is a couple of times, both in the Northern Wei and then in the Northern Qi, an attempt to create a new type of Taoism, which is also centered on the state, which has the state as the primary source of authority and the primary source of patronage. And then the state ruler is himself, in some sense, an apotheosized Taoist uh, sa- savior figure or something like that. The emperor of the Northern Way uh, takes a reign name, which is the the uh, perfected ruler of great peace, a very Taoist reign name. What they're trying to do is create a very different type of Taoism that that will sort of function as the support of the state as opposed to the support of Taoist communities. Um, It's never really very successful, but it does indeed have some influence on Taoism as a whole. And we see this in particular in the following Tang Dynasty from 618 to 907. The Tang Dynasty sees itself in some ways as a Taoist dynasty and tries to promote Taoism through the state in a way that recalls, in any case, the the, West, the northern way and northern qi uh, attempts to do the same.
0: Now, the, the second half of the book, you move to look at uh, kind of the ritual aspects of Taoist communities uh, during these first few centuries. Um, and you, you start by kind of setting the stage uh, for the reader. Um, so I was hoping you could talk a little bit about uh, kind of the, the sites um, and the attire that you, you uh, focus on in one chapter that's required for ritual activity. What what does this all look like?
1: Okay, so the most interesting aspect of this, I think, is Taoist architecture. Every Taoist family was, was thought to have a Taoist identity and ritual responsibilities, at least the the leader of the family, the elder male, was supposed to be able to, to do some religious rituals. In order to do that, he actually needed a ritual space. And each Taoist family is thought is supposed to have a structure called a quiet room or oratory. It's defined in some detail. It's a separate structure, not just an appendage to your house. And it's very simply... Uh, attired with just a few elements in it. It's very spare. All you have in this is an empty room with a writing table, some ink, brushes, and a knife to erase your mistakes, and an incense burner. There's no imagery. There's no icons, nothing. But every Taoist family, the leader of that family at least, every morning is supposed to go into that oratory and do an audience ritual greeting the gods of the five directions. And every evening he returns to that oratory and does an audience ritual closing out the day toward these deities. And on these occasions he is empowered to make an oral request for his family. The uh, Each family also has a priest called a libationer who is their master and who guides them in religion. The master has a larger building called a parish or jir in Chinese. And it's really very similar to the quiet room of the individual practitioner, just a bit bigger. So it can accommodate a few more people for the rituals. Uh, The the libationer is a constant counselor to these individual Taoists uh, when they have a problem and they can't resolve it themselves. Maybe they do an oral request in their personal quiet room and it doesn't work. They can then go to their local priest and request his or her help. Generally, men had male masters. Women had female masters. And that priest will then write out for them a formal Taoist document called a petition and offer it up to the heavens, send it up to the Taoist heavens, requesting intervention on behalf of this family so that their misfortunes will be dispelled. Uh, So those are the two main elements of structures, this individual quiet room and then the larger parish for the community. There was also distinctive dress, we think. Uh, Most Taoists wore yellow robes when they were at least performing rituals, and they seem to have been quite distinctive in society in this regard. Um, And most importantly, they avoided all of the sacred spaces of the popular religion, all of the spaces connected to blood sacrifice and the banquets that normally followed a blood sacrifice.
0: Now, you've mentioned some of these kind of uh, <clears throat> these these various levels or roles for community members. Um, and you, you do this in the book mm-hmm. very well. You, you show how they're both uh, unique, but then interconnected, uh, what you call the Taoist citizen, the novice and the libationer. Uh, could you talk a little bit about uh, how these different roles uh, interact and support each other? Sure. So um, so the basic nexus is, is the
1: libationer and the Taoist citizen. So most people are Taoist citizens. They contribute uh, by the family five pecks of rice per year as their annual tide that makes them official members of the church. They also keep a, a record of all the members of their family that they turn in to their uh, local priest. Uh, three times a year at the three annual assemblies. And the priest, as I mentioned, ministers to them and deals with their problems. Now, some Taoists might aspire to become libationers themselves, and any Taoist indeed has this right to enter into training. They do that by becoming a novice or lu sheng register student. And this can happen as early as the age of seven. I think it was typically done during childhood. So most children start at an early age training. This is also probably where they learn to read and write, certainly where they learn to read and write the complex forms of Chinese necessary for Taoist ritual documents. And they would go through a period of training as novices that might last 15 years, 10 to 15 years probably, as they went through a series of ranks. And the ranks are denoted by the names of the registers or official ordination documents they get. There's the one general register, the 10 general register, 75 general register, and 150 general register. And as the names indicate, each one of these registers gives you command over a Larger force of spirit soldiers that can help you do all sorts of things within the religion. Um, When you reach the level of 150 spirit generals, you are then a full member of the church. You can become your own libationer, and you have to go out and basically become an evangelist seeking out your own flock. Uh, A lot of people tried to steal existing Taoists from other communities, but the proper way was always to go out and convert your own from the profane and create your own parish. So you could then transfer, you could, from a Taoist citizen, go through the novitiate and become a full-fledged libationer or priest. Uh, And priests were Tian Guan
0: heavenly officials
1: empowered to
0: intervene in the heavens. Now, uh, the the libation uh, might be the most complex and and interesting for listeners uh, because of the the various roles that they have, um, starting out first as these evangelists that you're talking about, but they're also in charge of uh, spirit communication. They act as uh, judges in many ways. Um, Could you talk a little bit about uh, the, the various functions uh, that a libationer would play in the community um, and what would be the desired outcome for someone um, basically trying to, to have a uh, a parish priest uh, do something on their behalf? Right.
1: So the parish priest has a lot of different roles. I think of him very much like a Western pastor in the sense that um they, they're they just responsible for the general welfare of the people under their control. They keep control of them, records of them in something uh, called a fate roster. And they really deal with all of the problems they might encounter. One of the most common is illness. And illness was always assumed to be linked to sin. So, uh, there, the libationer's role is as a counselor to talk it over with, with, the, uh, with the afflicted person, discuss what they might have done that would have broken the rules, broken the precepts, uh, why this illness might have attacked them. And then the <coughs> libationer f- formulates this into a formal petition. That's in the form that the heavenly bureaucrats are used to seeing. He gives a rationale for why this person should be healed, you know, acknowledging their faults to be sure, but at the same time claiming that they are a good Taoist and want to be seek the the compassion of the Tao. And this is then uh, translated through fire and sent up to the heavens. And hopefully the heavenly bureaucrats act upon it, and that person will then be healed. It was understood that all illness comes from sin, and it can only be resolved by sin. Recurring illnesses were a problem for them. It was thought that if you healed someone once and then the illness recurred, it was because of the moral failings of the client. Because that person was not a good person, did not actually confess, was not really contrite. Um, And for that reason, the healing failed. And there is a warning that if someone is healed religiously and then falls ill again, you should not heal them twice. So um, beyond that, as you mentioned, the, the, uh, the libationer was a sort of could function as a sort of spirit medium could get messages directly from the founders of the church or other types of spirits, something like that might actually have worked with local spirit mediums validating or, or, um, assessing at least their revelations, whether they're true or false, whether they're worthy to be, to be followed. Uh, and then the, the priest has his own role in the ritual maintenance of the universe. The, every Taoist priest has an official office that's involved with great cosmic matters like um, suppressing evil demons or shuttering the the temples to the profane spirits and things like that, equalizing pneumas across the con- congregation. There's a whole variety of these offices that show their sort of greater role within the church and maybe even within the cosmos as a whole. Now,
0: uh, while many uh, associate uh, death in China with Buddhism, uh, there are also rituals for the dead uh, in this context. Uh, So could you talk a little bit about the ritual response to death for uh, within these Taoist communities?
1: Yeah, so this is a little bit puzzling. Death seems to have been a problem for the early Taoists. The ideal was that you would be translated directly into the heavens. You would, uh, in the Ch- words of the Chinese saying, uh, climb up to the heavens in broad daylight or something like that. And in general, any time you fell ill, it was understood to be the result of sin, right? So death is tainted. People die because they're sinful. And it looks like in the early period there wasn't really a very good ritual for them within Taoism. Um, Such rituals do in fact take form later on, but the Taoists always had a very specific um, and unique attitude toward these rituals. For example, Taoists did not believe in any of the taboos or timings that dominated popular practice. Um, popular, Tao, popular Chinese religion places a lot of emphasis on death and burial. And there are a lot of taboos. Uh, often families wait for long periods of time to bury an individual because they're waiting for an auspicious timing. Taoists totally rejected all of this. They claimed our Tao is superior to all of these superstitions. So we, Taoists, just perform our funeral rituals when we want to, where we want to, with no attention whatsoever to any of these traditional taboos. Again, because the Tao is just superior to all of that. Taoist deities... Can order all of these local gods to pay attention and conform to ritual. So that's sort of the distinctive way that Taoists uh, deal with uh, death. They do seem different from normal Chinese. They don't do the same type of rituals. It's very hard to find a Taoist burial. Anything that indicates a burial is Taoist until maybe the 5th or 6th century when they start adopting some of the more popular practices like putting land contracts into tombs or making icons of their gods. Things like well, that.
0: There, there's a great deal in the book. And uh, I mean, it's really, this will be uh, for for a long time, the the work on the celestial masters. Um, is there any kind of final thoughts uh, that you want to uh, to say about the book that we didn't get to cover specifically? Um so the, in
1: the book I tried to 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 be systematic and complete. I tried to deal with all the evidence. I'm finding now that there's still some types of evidence I didn't include and perhaps there's still some more to say about that. But what I'm really interested now in is is sort of what was the the last maybe the epilogue of the book sort of what happens to the celestial masters after this. There's important new scriptural movements in the fourth century that bring new ideas into Taoism. At the same time, there's a lot of Buddhist ideas and elements that come into Taoism in the fourth and fifth centuries and that get incorporated into Taoist ritual. So uh, that's the sort of undone part of, of this study of the celestial masters and probably what I will turn to next to, uh, yeah. to explore sort of how these accommodations are made with these new forms of Taoism how people uh, adopt you know Buddhist ideas basically for example the idea of reincarnation you know, Taoists start out without this idea. They instead see continuities within families. You in some ways may be a reincarnation or or a or certainly a, a connected part of your ancestors, but not anyone else's in early Taoism. And then you come into this Buddhist idea of re- reincarnation. And of course that just upsets the apple cart and people have to rethink all sorts of
0: things. Um, well, Terry, before I let so. you go, could you tell us a little bit about the things that uh, you, you've been working on since the book? Uh, perhaps stuff we might look forward to uh, in some sort of publication soon.
1: Well, wow. So, um, there are, I, I have a volume of translations that, that are the texts that I relied upon primarily in writing the Celestial Masters book and that's certainly to come. Beyond that, I've been looking at these sort of later celestial master texts. Specifically, I just wrote a paper called After the Apocalypse about a text where clearly uh, this sort of millennial fervor has decreased, or if not disappeared, and people are sort of dealing with a more routinized world, trying to figure out what it meant to be a Taoist. In a world where great peace was not imminent and uh, you had to coexist with the profane. Um, I think that's an intriguing sort of direction that I'll pursue for,
0: the, for a while. Well, Terry, good luck on your uh, future projects and thanks for making the time to talk about this wonderful book. Thank you so much for, for this enlightened
1: interview and best work on your projects as well.
0: That was my conversation with Terry Kleeman about Celestial Masters, History and Ritual in Early Daoist Communities, published with Harvard University Press in 2016. Thanks for listening to another episode of New Books in Religion.